At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. Welcome back to another Drug Science Podcast. Today I have a, a drug science helper with me, Anna Thurger, who's a, someone that you, if you work or if you've been around drug science meetings in the last years, now is uh, a very important part of our organisation. So welcome, Hannah. Thank you, Dave. And the guest tonight is Evan Lewis. Evan is a neurologist. He's currently medical director of the Neurology Centre Toronto by Numinous. And in a minute, he'll explain to us uh, what all that means. But the reason he's here tonight is particularly because he is a world expert on medical cannabis, particularly the utility of medical cannabis in relation to neurological disorders and especially epilepsy. So, so Evan, it's great to have you on board. Welcome. Thank you so much, Evan. I appreciate the introduction and very happy to be here. Yeah, and yet particularly impressed that you survived the, the great Arctic storm unscathed but snowed in, is that right? Uh, yeah, it snowed in a little bit, but a typical typical Canadian winter. We get one or two of these in Toronto. And being in Toronto, I'm gonna I'm gonna insult all the people who live way north of me that get much worse weather. So we're we're okay down here. Of course, any of you who've been to Toronto realize that actually it's it's well equipped for these winters because half of it's underground, but you only see that in the winter. That's true. That's true. It becomes subterranean. <laughs> keep warm. Thanks for joining the program, and we'll talk a bit in a minute about about your medical cannabis work. But but explain this is an interesting innovation, this Numinous, which I believe is a psychedelic Correct. company. Correct, Numinous is a psychedelic company based out of Vancouver, but has clinics in Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, and also in in the states as well, Utah, and Arizona. So they've recently expanded there. They when Numinous purchased my clinic, which I founded back in 2016. The idea was, from my point of view, to really build out the concept of utilizing psychedelics in the context of neurologic disorders. So I joined on as the vice president of psychedelic neurology for Numinous and remained as the director of the Neurology Center of Toronto, which I established, as I mentioned a few years ago, and remain as the medical director there. Well, I'm very excited by the concept of psychedelic neurology, which is not not something that's much talked about. Do you want to just elaborate a bit? I mean, and also what psychedelics can you use currently? Right. So psychedelic neurology is kind of a concept more or less I was, I, I started to think about roughly maybe 10 or plus years ago now. And the idea is how to utilize psychedelics in the context of neurologic disorders. So a lot of the research that was being done at that time, as you and most of the audience might know, it remains in these areas is in psychiatry and psychology. And I always thought, you know, well, you look at the comorbidity of psychological and psychiatric disorders in neurologic disease, and it's extremely significant and prevalent and way more than the, you know, the population who does not have neurologic disease. So when you looked at the, when I looked at the research, it 
you, you just have to look at the exclusion criteria and many people with neurologic disorders are completely excluded. For instance, anyone with epilepsy is, is an absolute contraindication for any of the, the, the trials that were done. Uh, people with past brain injury, stroke, concussion, et cetera. So, you know, I really wanted to bring psychedelics to help my patients who are struggling with those neurologic disorders and determine if it was safe to do and determine if we'd actually get efficacy in people whose brains might not be functioning to the same degree as someone who is not afflicted with a neurologic disorder. So that that's kind of one area. And then the other area is, well, what neurologic disorders might be amenable to psychedelics? And I think there's a few, and we can definitely talk about that. Well, I'm interested to know, I mean, given, are you doing trials? I mean, presumably, although Canada, I think now Alberta and British Columbia have loosened up the mushrooms. But I mean, presumably none of them are actually available for clinical therapy yet. So what are you doing, trials or what? Tell us how you're working. Right. Yeah. So there's no um, direct access to psilocybin, MDMA, or other psychedelics yet. We do have access to ketamine. So ketamine is, is available and you know, very much uh, like m- much of the world. But yes, so it's either it's either trials with psilocybin and MDMA, or we do have the special access program now in Canada, which came into being last year. And with through the special access program that was initiated by by Health Canada, is that is a program in which physicians can make applications to the government for people who have serious life threatening conditions. So in those circumstances, we can access psilocybin and MDMA, but it is cumbersome. It's not so easy. It's difficult. Um, to do, but but that is one current pathway right now. So so Numinous is you're a clinic company as opposed to you're not discovering new psychedelics. You're you're more a rollout. Yeah, there's a, a few arms. So there's some work in the laboratory. There's a laboratory at West that is doing some you know to some degree of drug discovery. Actually, just uh, announced a specific mushroom tea that has a dose specific amount that can be used for trials. So that was recently developed in the lab. In addition to that, we do or we do participate in research trials. There are a couple right now. One's pending in ketamine to begin in June 2023, and we've worked with MAPS in the past as well with the phase three trial, which is closing. So there and there are some down the pipeline that we're interested in doing. And then on top of that, there are clinics in which we utilize ketamine to treat people right now and in preparation for the upcoming legalization of MDMA and, and psilocybin medically, which is... So you're gearing us. up for when MAPS... Yeah. There was an announcement, I think, was it yesterday or today, saying that they, they look quite positive to so the second phase three, which is exciting. So so you'll be ready to, to roll it out when they get FDA permission. Do you think Health Canada will be quite quick to, uh, to approve if the FDA do? I think so. You know, there's an interesting kind of relationship there. And it's been really interesting in cannabis where you know, how legalization has kind of come forward with cannabis. And it was really more of the pressure from the public and kind of what you just said that earlier, right? The, the loosening up of kind of regulations. And it's more just the tolerability. There are many mushroom shops that have opened up in Vancouver and in Toronto. There's been a couple as well that have opened up despite them being illegal. Hey, that's competition for cannabis shops. Right. <laughs> I mean, Every street in, when I was there last year, every street in Toronto has his own cannabis shop. So, are they the same shops or different shops? So they're different shops, but this is what happened with cannabis in Canada. Essentially, prior to recreational legalization, when there was a loosening of, you know, or essentially a, a kind of decriminalization, and, and a lot of the authorities were turning a blind eye, 
all these cannabis shops popped up and then they would get raided by the police and the cannabis shops would pay the fine and just reopen the next morning, essentially. And this happened a lot in prior to legalization, so prior to 2018. And eventually that kind of really pressured the government to kind of to legalize cannabis to some degree. And we kind of see the same thing happening in Canada with psychedelics. So, you know, it will be interesting to see what evolves over the next, uh, you know, one to three years in terms of medical and recreational legalization. Yeah, no. These substances. Well, you're definitely ahead, of, definitely ahead of Britain, that's for sure. Although that's not difficult. <laughs> so tell me a bit, bit. I'm interested in. So obviously, I know about ketamine for addiction, and I know about ketamine for depression. But right. are you beginning to use it for neurological disorders as well? Or? So I think so. First off, there's there's kind of evidence that is beginning to mount, and a lot of theoretical work for in the concept of. The classical psychedelics, like you know psilocybin and LSD and DMT, for use in certain neurological disorders. Hannah and I were previously just speaking before we came on about stroke, brain injury, and there's also a real interesting kind of movement towards functional neurological disorders as well, which I have a strong interest in. Sorry, a lot of doctors don't know what functional neurological disorders means, and most sure. of our audience won't. So, do you want to do you want to clarify that for them, please? Yeah, that's that's a good point. You're you're right, and and you know, and, and to carry that point forward, a lot of neurologists don't uh, really understand fully functional neurological disorders. So, what are they? They're really this interesting condition that's kind of at the intersection of both neurology and psychiatry. What it is at real kind of very you know high level conceptual idea is a problem with brain networks, and the way that our brain is networked, it results in how we perceive our bodies and the external world. So what happens is if you get in problems in these brain networks, you can have very distressing motor problems, sensory problems, cognitive problems that have very specific findings when we examine these patients or when we take histories that are different from other conditions. So as a very, to flush out as an example, someone can present to me with paralysis of the right arm. And when I do all of the, the examination techniques for them and everything else, it's different. It doesn't seem like what would be, quote, a regular paralysis that might be caused by damage in an area of the brain that controls the arm. So we have certain findings there that tell us that, oh, there's something different about this. And then that paralysis is actually due to the way in which our minds and, and our brains are, you know, control the ability of the arm to move. So a real simple way to do this, and John Stone is kind of one of the pioneers of this idea, it's a software problem versus a hardware problem. So functional neurological disorder is a problem how our nervous system is controlling our bodies versus the hardware required to control these things. Yeah. And so ketamine can kind of disrupt that somehow distorted... Bit of software and recent, so we've got our, our our depressed patients often talk about uh, how ketamine or psychedelics kind of reformat or you know, or defrag their hard drive, reset their computers. Similar concept. Yeah, it really is. And there's uh, a single case report of ketamine treating functional paralysis, like I just mentioned. So it was a functional paralysis of the arm or the leg, and ketamine restored that individual's ability to move the arm or the leg. From our side, our patient uh, zero, our first patient that we treated at my clinic was for functional seizures. So to play the point forward for the audience, these are seizures that are not 
epileptic seizures. These are seizures very much in the vein of what I just described previously. So these are seizures that arise due to a problem with the networks in the brain. They look like seizures. They behave, you know, people behave as if they're having a seizure. But if we attach electrodes and we measure the brain activity, the brain activity electrically is all normal. So we actually treated a patient who had a very positive response to ketamine. She was having two to three seizures per day for five years on the background of a lot of trauma. After her third ketamine session, she went seizure-free for for almost three weeks and has significantly reduced her seizure burden since then. That was now four months ago, roughly, with concurrent reductions in her depression scores, anxiety scores, and everything else. And she is processing trauma at a level now that she was she couldn't even speak to her traumas without having a seizure previously and now she's you know processing it at very high level it's quite it's been quite an amazing case and we're we're writing that up right now as i did neurology i did quite a bit of neurology and it was actually it was functional disorders like i mean hey two things the first is it these seizures are extremely difficult they do vex neurologists who can't really get their head around them and they're of course you know and they and they're very hard to treat and you get years of trying to work out whether they're real seizures or pseudo seizures but these functional disorders i mean they're so interesting and uh, you know they tell us so much more about how the brain works than simply looking at strokes isn't it so it's uh, yeah fascinating you're doing it you know because up till then we really just used to hand them over to psychiatrists to, to try to help you know to analyze them but but now we can help them reset their brain which is exciting you know it's really exciting, David, and I think what is so interesting, and, I, and this is what really interested me in psychedelics very early on, was I always looked at psychedelics as a tool which is going to allow us to understand the brain better. And I think we're going to see, my prediction is in the next five years, we're going to see this overlap between functional disorders and psychedelics, and we're going to learn a, a lot about the evolution of functional disorders by the information we glean from our knowledge that we gain in psychedelics. It's, it's going to be fascinating because it almost overlaps beautifully in a very eloquent type of way when you really dig into the neurobiologic mechanisms that underlie functional disorders and psychedelics. Yeah, no. I don't know if you saw it, but uh, our group, the first author, Carhart Harris, uh, got a paper in, in neuro, the special issue of neuro pharmacology on, on psychedelics, bringing in this concept of canalization about how the more, when you start to do things, the brain starts to do them better and better, and then you get trapped into a way of a way of doing things from which it's hard to escape, and psychedelics can disrupt that. So, yeah, it makes perfect sense. With yeah, and that was with Carl Friston, correct? The one that they just published? That was Friston. That's right. That's Friston. Was on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So all of, all of their work has been very inspiring for me, and it's really, really set a lot of the you know the groundwork that that I've springboarded from to to do the work with functional disorders and 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 given your background too, David, in neurology, this is how I kind of like to explain it to neurologists because we're always looking for the level of the lesion is the lesion in the cortex is the lesion in the brainstem. So no one talks about the lesion being in the network, not in classical neurology. So I, I try to tell people, yeah, this is a this is a network lesion. That's that's where we're having these problems with functional disorders, and hence the reason why psychedelics can work. And are they listening? Because one of the reasons I left neurology, neurologists weren't generally that interested. <laughs> yeah, so this is my, uh, I guess this is my, my other, uh, I guess, feat I'm trying to tackle. So, you know, neurologists, we're a funny bunch. We really, we really like evidence and obviously, you know, really like 
a very logical explanation. So that kind of inspires me to do a lot of work in trying to create anecdote metaphors, concepts that can relay the message to neurologists and kind of you know generally open them up. There are many neurologists who are open to this in Canada and even more. So I've already given rounds in the Toronto hospitals and I'm giving rounds at the Hospital for Sick Children, which is a, a very big children's pediatric hospital in, in Toronto. So hopefully by bringing forward all the great work that everybody's done, like yourself and, and the other individuals you mentioned, and really present it in a very evidence-based academic light, I think that's how we'll probably eventually get to them. And and I think what, what's so interesting, when you go there, there's actually no conception that these trials or even this evidence is, or even this great kind of preclinical neuroanatomical and biological work has even been done. So it's almost like just showing everybody what's out there and then letting them come to their own decisions. Well, we will definitely support and encourage you in that <laughs> and learn lessons. <laughs> I want to move now on to your amazing, amazing... Is it true you've treated a 1,000 people with medical cannabis epilepsy? Yeah, it's got to be close to that number at this point, either treated in or slash consulted on, you know, because there's lots of people, uh, and I always say this, you know, cannabis is not a panacea, and, and a lot of patients come to me for cannabis, and I actually tell them it's not for them at this point in time. So, yeah, it's upwards of a 1,000 at this point. So tell us, get us how you got interested in that then, and uh, and then I'll... Uh, uh, hand over to Anna sure. so, so she can she can grill you on because she's she's an expert on medical cannabis. <laughs> oh, great, good, I love it. Well, I, I would it, it was back in my fell in my residency days. So my residency was from uh, two thousand eight to two thousand thirteen, and that was really when cannabis started to come forward, or, or at least a lot of parents. So I, my my background training is pediatric neurology and pediatric epilepsy, and a lot of parents would come forward and ask about cannabis for their children who had very drug-resistant bad epilepsy. And they were dismissed with very little discussion by my mentors. And I don't know, I think maybe I've always been one of those people who kind of gravitates towards the things that, that people dismiss, because that was very interesting to me, like why they were outrightly dismissing this. And it actually was well-timed with <laughs> some of your work that you were doing that I read. So I was inspired by some of the the work that you were doing at that time and, and allowed me to be a little bit more open to it. Fast forward a little bit, there was this one patient, very bad epilepsy, mom really wanted cannabis, she was denied. I went off to Miami to do my fellowship and I got, I came home and on the front cover of the National Post, which is a big national paper in Canada, was my patient. And it was a story of how this patient used cannabis and his seizures stopped. And I was floored, I was blown away because this boy we tried everything under the sun to stop his seizures, and he was just degenerating. At that point, I realized something's here, and people are just not paying attention to it. And then subsequent to that, Sanjay Gupta did a documentary on Charlotte Figgy, and that kind of really cemented it for me. And that's when I also got interested in psychedelics, so opened my mind to that as well. And when I finished my fellowship, I worked at the Hospital for Sick Children for a couple of years and really wanted to work in cannabis, but it was, it was difficult to do that there. So I left and opened up a community clinic in 2016 in the Center of Toronto, really to focus on medical cannabis and multidisciplinary neurologic care. And kind of the rest is history. It just, it was nobody wanted to work with it. So, you know, everybody was sending the patients to me, pediatric and adult. Yeah. So it's interesting, Evan, it's a similar case in the UK where it was patients, um, parents who were really child parents pushing for change in the medical cannabis laws here with Alfie Dingley and Billy Caldwell. And I'm just wondering whether in Canada there's the same stigma associated with medical cannabis for childhood epilepsy. 
Hello everyone, Dr. Hannah Thurger here. Sorry to interrupt the show, but we have something really exciting that we wanted to share with you all. Drug Science is teaming up with the UK's most prolific psychedelic research centre, Imperial College London, to record a one-off podcast special. But wait, there's more. On Tuesday the 15th of August from 6.30 until 9.30, we're taking the conversation offline and bringing it to the heart of West London. So yes, that's right. Not only are we collaborating with Imperial College for this prestigious podcast episode, this will be a live podcast recording and you're invited to be a part of our audience. Imperial College is sending us their best and brightest minds for an exclusive insight into the world of psychedelic clinical trials, many of which are not even public knowledge at this point. So mark your calendars for Tuesday the 15th of August, doors open at 6pm and the podcast recording starts at 6.30pm sharp. And as always, our Drug Science Premium Community members will be able to attend this event for free and will even be invited to participate in the conversation too. We'll have a Q&A session where community members can ask their burning questions to our panel of experts. So it's a chance to engage directly with the leading minds in, in the field and ask Dave pretty much anything. Find out how to become a community member by visiting the link in the show notes. Otherwise, tickets are available now. Please see the other link in the show notes. So don't wait too long though, as space is limited and we do expect this event to sell out fast. I look forward to seeing you there. And now back to the show. So I came to the UK in 2018 to give a talk on cannabis. And when I was speaking to everybody there, I think I said to them every at the time, all of you guys are in Canada 2012 right now. That's where you are. <laughs> That's what it felt like, right? Maybe even further behind. Maybe even further. <laughs> it may have been. Yeah, but that really initiated my work in the UK. So I, I kind of so I have a few associations with a lot of with some groups in the UK as well with medical cannabis. And yeah, so there were there were a lot of patient driven factors that helped with the legalization of cannabis and the, and more the acceptance of cannabis. At this point now, generally, it's pretty widely accepted that it's a treatment for epilepsy, even in adults. However, there is still stigma attached to it, and there are still a lot of neurologists and doctors who do not want to manage cannabis or outright refuse to even have discussions with patients. That's becoming less and less. But it's funny. It's a funny phase. And I think this is going to happen in the UK as well. Once the UK evolves further and cannabis is then utilized a bit more freely with these patients, I think there's going to be an indifference that settles in. It's almost like there's like there's an indifference with physicians to cannabis. It's like, oh, it's an epilepsy drug. I don't really care. I don't really need to learn that much about it. Right? We'll send it off to this person, that person. Versus before, there was almost this active push against it. That's kind of dissolved. And now there's just more, like I said, it's, it's hard to explain. I feel that it's more of, like, of an indifference. And do you think that came with increased education and improved research and evidence? Yeah. And I think there wasn't a, just a general adoption of cannabis. Honestly, I think it was the recreational legalization that really pushed things over. It just, it just kind of, once you see it around all the time and everything, it just normalized it a little bit more, I believe. And, and because certainly prior to 2018, there was, there was fairly active resistance. After 2018, it really did relax. Especially now. And I think, honestly, COVID helped. 
you had COVID in a bunch of cannabis shops all over the place, right? So I think it just helped to kind of normalize this as being something that's available, publicly used. So, you know, it's the, the act of resistance kind of faded a bit. So one of our research area interests that drug science is long COVID, and I know it might not be one of your specialist areas, but just wondering whether you've ever treated patients with long COVID symptoms or patients who have similar symptoms to those presented in long COVID. Yeah, so I think long COVID is a really interesting entity. You know, for me, long COVID is not anything new. It's something very commonly as a neurologist I would see with any viral infection. So, you know, it's not uncommon for someone to have a viral infection and then develop headaches. And then four weeks after the viral infection has gone, have, you know, cognitive symptoms such as fogginess or inattentiveness, pain, like general pain and malaise and, you know, other kind of various things. And the only trigger would be an infection that they had at one point in time. We're just seeing this in such large numbers now because COVID affected so many people. So I'm wondering at times, I wonder if there, if it, you know, is, is kind of more of a representation of what we see as a consequence of viral infections in, in a minority of people. It's just we have a large number now. So I have seen a lot of long COVID patients because they present with headaches and cognitive symptoms. Interestingly, they present exactly like chronic concussion patients. They have the same symptoms. Fascinating. Mm. So again, coming back to brain networks, you know, long, for me, can, you know, and, and, and this is kind of aligns with a lot of insight into chronic or, or it's called persistent post-concussive symptoms now versus post-concussion syndrome. We moved away from that term. So it's PPCS. So in the context of PPCS, it is also a network problem. When you take patients with PPCS and you do fMRI studies on them, you see abnormal and altered brain networks. And it's fascinating to me that long COVID is the same kind of clinically. So I wonder, I don't, I haven't looked at, at this yet, but I do kind of wonder when I see these patients, what their brains would look like on an fMRI. Do they have altered network, you know, function relative to someone without long COVID? And is it similar to people with post-concussion syndrome? And is it similar to people with functional neurological disorders? Very, very, very interesting. And so I guess that, I mean, we're focusing on medical cannabis and kind of jumping them back to medical psychedelics. If it's a circuit issue, would psychedelics potentially be beneficial in those circumstances? I think so. (laughs) I, I do. I do think so. And we do have a patient who we may, she's been very resistant treatment wise from long COVID and has struggled for about a year plus, we are looking at potential for ketamine-assisted therapy with it. Now, I also use medical cannabis with these patients as well, and we do get some relief. I use medical cannabis with concussion patients too. So, you know, and if when you dig into the endocannabinoid system, there is action via cannabinoids at 5-HT2A, which we see with, with psychedelics. And the endocannabinoid system itself is a, is a kind of homeostatic type system too. So there's certainly, you know, brain network effects with cannabis. And we do see quite, we, we've seen some mildly positive results with long COVID and certainly good results with concussion, but in the context mainly of sleep when I'm using medical cannabis. Evan, can I just flip back for just a few minutes about the epilepsy? Because you know, we've had been such a battle in Britain and, it, and that the parents have been in the middle between that we've got the NHS saying no, no, not enough evidence and and we've got the parish of patients saying, well, it's cured my kid. What more evidence do I need? 
and I suppose for you in Canada, it's a bit you've got a bit more flexibility because I mean, you you have a private system, or or, or can can people come to you with their insurance cover your interventions as well? Now. I hear you, David. And as I said, I've done some work in the UK and I've actually spoken with many parents and I know it's tough and the struggles that people are facing, you know, in the UK and I feel for the families there and, you know, it has inspired a lot of the work that I've done and the time that I've given to, to the organizations in the UK. So when you compare kind of Canada, Canada is a public system, you know, the, the private system is very small in Canada. So insured services like seeing me for a consultation are all covered. So patients can come and see me to discuss cannabis over and over and over and over again. And it doesn't cost them anything out of pocket whatsoever. So that's an insured service. Now, when it comes to the purchase of cannabis, however, they do have to pay for the cannabis out of pocket. So cannabis, there's no indication for any cannabis oil use in Canada. And therefore, there's no drug identification number. And therefore, there's no coverage under the public system for cannabis. So patients have to pay out of pocket. Costs can be very high for epilepsy, given the typically the amount of CBD that's needed. But other disorders or conditions like anxiety, headache, concussion, sleep, you know, it's, it, it doesn't cost that much. It's actually quite affordable. And in your, in your epilepsy work, do you start off with CBD and then how and how and then do you have to morph across the THC sometimes or what? Give us give us a bit more of the sort of the clinical management of, of patients. Yeah, sure. So given the time that I spent with cannabis, what we've actually done at the clinic, my team and I had developed very specific treatment protocols for every condition that we work with. So we have a very structured, formalized, phased approach to epilepsy and adults and kids. We have a phased approach to autism, we have a phased approach to headache, to sleep, etc. And it's all standardized. So every patient that comes to me, there is a, like I said, a standardized phased approach. And therefore that keeps me consistent and I can better judge outcomes for every person. And we've been able to reiterate these protocols over time. We're hopefully, we've gathering them into a a handbook that we're going to hopefully publish by the end of the year this year. So yeah, it's back to kind of more direct to your question there, David, typically for epilepsy. And again, these protocols are based on the evidence and then reinforced by our clinical work with the number of patients we've seen and my own kind of understanding and my colleagues' understanding of, of cannabis and how it works. That being said, we we initially start with CBD, and then we optimize CBD for epilepsy patients, and then we move by the third phase, we're, we're adding THC. And then we work with THC in varying proportions to try to balance or bring some you know restoration of the endocannabinoid tone back to the system. And in doing so, we've seen quite good results in both you know, both the CBD alone plus CBD THC. There are patients who I've had who have been completely resistant to CBD and you add a little bit of THC and their seizures stop. I have a famous kind of, or famous, I have my, my kind of prime case that I present typically with talks. And I think I did present it at the UK patient conference of one of our patients and she responded beautifully and her seizure stopped at three years of age and she's now eight and completely seizure free the entire time. She's developed normally where prior to that she was, she was really regressing and she probably would, and she was completely treatment resistant and probably would have lost all skills motor wise and cognitively at the rate that she was going. We have a few patients stories like that, that have been just incredible, but required THC and it was not working with CBD alone. And the, but the, in Britain, the doomsayers and the anti, I don't know, many of them are pediatricians, the anti cannabis, they, oh, well, they'll do. De- they will get dependent and they will become psychotic. I mean, we're not finding that in our our cohorts of adults. Which I mean, do you see any of that, or is it 
because it seems to me there's been an enormous the justification for not prescribing they're clinging on to you know what are actually rare or you know almost theoretical bad outcomes have you seen anything negative no not and especially not at the doses we're using right you do not need a lot of thc to help in these particular conditions within neurology and you know, and, and I understand where those practitioners are coming from, given kind of, you know, the environment they were raised and, and everything else, but also the data that's out there, right? Like the data that's out there is that speaks to all of this is all with very high smoked TH, this cannabis with high potency, you know, THC, which is when I give, so I give a talk every week to incoming patients who come through our cannabis program. And I say to them, look, like this is something we have to think about, but you have to also recognize where it's coming from. It's coming from trials and studies where people were inhaling cannabis via smoke and, and with very large amounts of THC. It's almost like it's an apples and orange comparison to me at this point. And then after one almost 1,000 patients, you know, I've never seen a case like that. Not one. Are there behavioral issues that come out? Yeah. But also the population that I'm dealing with, there's a lot of intellectual disability, autism, other things. So for sure, cannabis is, you know, not helpful for those people, but very like other anti-epileptic drugs. I tried Keppra on some kids or, or Topiramate on adults or whatnot, and you can get these behavioral disorders as well. You, these are brain medicines. They, they can impact mood and behavior. Yeah, and do you think there are epilepsies that are particularly sensitive to medical cannabis and others that are not? I mean, do you have any clinical guidance there? Yeah, I, I think in general, and, and the data kind of reinforces this, is that, you know, general, first off, generalized epilepsies seem to be better treated than focal. And I think that is panning out in our literature. We're actually doing a, a nice review of our, of our patient cohort. We're hopefully going to review about 400, 500 of our patients for, for publication. And when we look, we're looking. Oh, see. Yeah, yeah. And, and we're actually, I think we're presenting uh, tomorrow at the drug science working group. So we've got our preliminary data. Our research coordinator, Frank Chen, is presenting our very preliminary data. We're still working on collecting. Uh, we have about 132 patients collected so far. Yeah, so it's great, and, and hopefully that can really inform everybody. And it looks like the generalized epilepsies tend to be more responsive. And the generalized epilepsies, you know, there's the unknown where we don't know the cause, and then there's the genetic where there's clear genetic findings. So not sure just yet, but there's, there's obvious ones like tuber sclerosis, Dravet syndrome. There's actually a few other kind of genetic syndromes that were maybe I'm anecdotally seeing some, some improvement. But in, in general, I think it's the generalized epilepsies that affect the whole brain in young kids because when we use cannabis, we're, we're acting on a system that does affect the whole brain versus something like focal seizures from a stroke. For instance, in those individuals, you would presume their endocannabinoid system was intact prior to the stroke, you know, and so cannabis theoretically may not be that effective in one area that's just structurally dysfunctional. In the UK, there's this, we do have epidiolex, and there's this insistence you've got to use it with a benzoclobazam. I mean, it, are there any constraints in Canada, and, and, and can you have monotherapy? I don't... So I guess to, when you say constraints, do you, if you're asking about kind of guidance and guidelines, and there really are... Not many constraints. I'm asking about what you do. I mean, medic cannabis by itself can be very effective without other drugs. Is and that's what I'm asking you about. Is is that the case? Yes, and I think so. And I think a lot of the clobazam data is interesting. I think they they can work together to synergize certain epilepsies, especially if one was responding to clobazam prior to cannabis, the other cannabis. We see this with valproic acid and lamotrigine. We see this nice synergy. We see synergy with some other medications. 
But I have patients who they were on Clobazam and I start them on cannabis and the Clobazam level goes up. I take them off Clobazam and their seizures continue to improve without Clobazam. So I've seen, I've seen all of it. And, you know, and then I've seen people who just Clobazam alone who didn't respond to cannabis. So I think it's a bit of a red, a red herring there. It's not, you know, if, if one's looking at it as an absolute, you must treat cannabis with Clobazam. I think you got to look at it as, as a combination effect and a synergy effect in some patients. Again, that's where you need clinical insight and knowledge and wisdom and be prepared to, to sort of, you know, to bring a bit of science and a bit of clinical nuance to, together. Precisely. Yeah, you, you need the large sample set to ultimately see that, you know, not every patient needs cannabis and clobazam. And that, to me, I don't even think about it, to be honest. It's not even a thought. All the thoughts are, I just want to make sure I'm not elevating clobazam to a point where I'm going to sedate the, ch- the child or the adult. We started looking, we've got a much smaller sample set than you, but we started looking at gender differences. And have you ever seen anything related to that? I can't say yet. You know, we're, we're our, our, first off, our, our data set too is retrospective. So there's going to be a lot of, you know, bias in there and, and, and a lot of incomplete information. So far, I, I can't say because we, we, I don't think we have, we haven't done the analysis big enough to see any difference. So far, no difference between the, no, the, the males and females. Yeah. No. No, we're not seeing much, but we have much smaller numbers. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah over the years, talked to one or two Canadians again, who are way like you, way ahead of us in terms of the clinical experience. And uh, one of them said a few years ago when we, we got him over to talk about you know, the future, he said, in, "In the end, there will probably be doctors who are cannabinologists. <laughs> They're experts. Mm-hmm. They, they, yeah. rather, than, rather than a specialism." They will be the specialism will be the would be the cannabis medicine as opposed to like some people are surgeons I suppose you know I mean what do you think about that is that is that likely to happen I mean or is it just going to get cannabis going to get into all other all branches of medicine in time I think if you had asked me a few years ago I may have agreed with that individual I'm going to push back I would push back you know and then that view and it's precisely the reason that I'm so passionate about psychedelics right now is. I do think there will be ways in which people will become experts in cannabis, but I think it is very, very important to first be a specialist in your field and then be an expert in cannabis within your field. So I worry, I worry about a so-called cannabinologist who doesn't have extensive epilepsy training and then is now treating complex epilepsy with cannabis just because that individual knows cannabis well. And I kind of joke about this and I say, you know, you could have a, uh, a topiramatologist, I don't know, like somebody who's an expert in topiramate and then treats uses topiramate across many different specialties. It, it just doesn't work. You need to first have the foundation principles. And so I, 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 that was a big problem with cannabis and remains a big problem with cannabis in Canada because of how it emerged from the bottom up, i.e. from like the parents and the advocacy groups. You had doctors who just became really knowledgeable about cannabis and started to treat everybody. And so you had family docs with no epilepsy experience treating complex epilepsy. So that actually really pushed me to get into cannabis at that point. I was like, no neurologists are doing this. No pediatric neurologists are doing this. No epilepsy specialists are doing this. We need, you need to bring the epilepsy expertise because it's more than just cannabis. So I do worry very much about psychedelics in that sense. And this is why I kind of, you know, went out and, try to create this field of psychedelic neurology in a sense to say like 
first you got to be a neurologist, then you understand psychedelics, and now you know how to utilize psychedelics within the context of neurologic disease, rather than it coming from the other direction where we don't have the overlying expertise to really understand what we're doing with the psychedelics. As an example, just to, as a last point here, I never treat gastrointestinal disorders, skin disorders. I, I don't do any of that. I only use cannabis within the context of what I know, which is neurology. Well, I know we've got to wind up soon, but I mean, how are you educating to junior doctors? I mean, is there a program of education now that's happening in Canada or is it still ad hoc and through a sort of apprenticeships to people like you? Yeah, it's the latter. So it still is like that. So our clinic is very open. We have lots of students and trainees who've come through, who've learned. I try to speak as often as possible on cannabis to doctor groups, to student groups, to trainee groups, but it really is ad hoc. And again, coming back to that previous point we were just talking about, that's my problem with this is like you can go to a course and, you know, do a, an asynchronous type of cannabis course. And then now you can go out and use cannabis in complex epilepsy. I mean, that's, to me, that's, that doesn't seem right. And I think down that path, more harms will result eventually in time as, as the numbers grow. And so, yeah, it needs to be implemented into the residency programs, into the nursing programs at a very foundational level. And then it has to specialize into its areas of specialization with further formal education beyond that. And that's something we are passionate about at Drug Science is trying to promote education at all the different levels, trying to get it in there right at the university level through to the specialist level for across the healthcare sector. So we've got amazing educational slides on our website and we do webinars for people who want to start prescribing within their specialism. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And it needs to be done that way. And it's just really getting the universities on board to kind of put this into their curriculum. That's that's ultimately what needs to be done in, in time. And they're all freely available on the on the website. So encourage your trainees to uh, on the drug science website and download them. <laughs> they can add you the heart. I will. <laughs> well, that is great. Evan, thank you so much. It's been a, I should have thanked you at the beginning for coming over to that <laughs> to the conference. I was not at, but but I gather went extremely well. But I'll thank you again for uh, for sharing so much knowledge and wisdom with us and I look forward to hearing about some of your preliminary data tomorrow. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I'll also thank Hannah for doing Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing the data tomorrow as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and thank you to you both. It's really an honor to be here. I've, I've been a big supporter of drug science for a while and, and all the work that you're doing. And Well, we appreciate it. And, we, and I'm sure that those thousand families appreciate it as well. So keep up the good work, Evan. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm working. I'm, I'm hopefully almost I'll be on the other side of the pond because I'm working on getting my UK license. It's a beast of an application, but fingers crossed I can I can finish that soon and then be able to kind of provide some support there medically in the cannabis world. OK, well, we look, I look forward to seeing you. Perfect. Uh, yeah, London or Bristol. All right. OK. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Take care. Cheers. Thanks again.